we wanted to keep it a bit more reliable. And so we built a Dan built to water to air in a cooler. It was double stacked, 1,000 horsepower cores, custom tanks, all that stuff. I tuned it on 40 pounds of boost. It came on boost probably 1,000 RPM earlier, and it made another 400 horsepower through the mid-range. We took this car back to the track, and it was like an animal. Welcome to the HPA Tuned In Podcast. I'm Andre, your host, and in this episode, we're joined by Varun from 101 Motorsport in Australia. Varun first got onto our radar because of his involvement building and running the Mighty Mouse Honda CRX that competed so successfully at World Time Attack Challenge. However, diving a little bit deeper into Varun's experience and passion, it's really drag racing which he is most passionate about and I also share that passion with my own background in drag racing. In this episode, we dive into Varun's background, basically how he built up his knowledge and experience, and then how he took over the running of what now is 101 Motorsport at a very young age, how he's now built that up to what is genuinely a world-class workshop covering all manner and facets of automotive modification and performance. We also dive deep into drag racing and what actually is involved from a tuner's perspective when it comes to drag racing. How can we maximise the performance of the car, particularly when we might be dealing with a car that has more power than it can actually put down to the track, at least for most of the pass down the drag strip. So we'll learn from Varun how he approaches this, how he balances that power and traction, what he's looking for in the data and how he is making changes to the tune-up in between rounds in order to get the best performance out of the car as the track conditions evolve. Before we get into our interview with Varun, for those who are new to the Tuned In podcast, High Performance Academy is an online training school. We specialise in teaching people how to tune, how to build performance engines, how to construct wiring harnesses. We also cover topics including race driver education, race car setup, 3D modelling and CAD as well as fabrication and you can find all of our courses at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. All of those courses are delivered via high definition video based modules that you can watch anywhere in the world provided you've got an internet connection giving you the ability to learn from the comfort of your own place and learn at your own pace. All of our courses also come with a 60 day no questions asked money back guarantee so if you purchase a course and decide it's not quite what you expected no worries, let us know. You'll get a full refund of the purchase price. As a podcast listener, you can also use the coupon code PODCAST75 and that will get you $75 off the purchase of your very first HPA course. We'll put that coupon code and a link to our courses page in the show notes to make it super easy to find. Lastly, if you like free stuff, then have I got a deal for you. HPA is always running giveaways and we partner with some of the biggest names in the industry. Maybe Maybe it'll be a aftermarket dash, maybe it'll be an ECU, it could be a set of tools or anything in between. Basically what I'm saying, this is stuff that you absolutely want. If you get into the draw and win, we will ship it to your door free of charge regardless whereabouts you are in the world. To see what our latest giveaway is and to get your name in the draw, head to hpacademy.com forward slash giveaway. There's no catch, no purchase required. All right, enough of that introduction, let's get into our interview now. 
All right, welcome to the podcast, Varun. Thanks for taking the time out of your day to chat with us. Let's start, like we always do, by finding out a little bit about your background, specifically when and where did you sort of form an interest in cars and motorsport? Hey, Andre, pleasure to be here, mate. My passion came from from my father. Like when we migrated to Australia, obviously having older cars and fixing cars, it was a thing like, you know, going to the wreckers and getting parts and fixing cars yourself. So I used to always, me and my brother, I used to tag along with my dad to all the wreckers and just working on these old shit boxes and not not shit boxes, but just, you know, just older cars. Yeah, older cars at doing things that people don't do these days. So I was lucky enough to um, have that influence in my life. And then around that period also is when the Skylines started racing in the supercars at Mount Panorama and in Bathurst and stuff. and um, So we're talking late 80s, early 90s? Early 90s, yeah, late 80s, early 90s. And at that time, my dad had a Nissan Pulsar and me and my brother thought it was the coolest car in the world. And then all of a sudden these Skylines came in and smashed, like obliterating everything on the track. And we just became like GDR nuts sort of. So ever since then... Like my dad obviously watched the racing, so we we took a real keen interest in that, working on cars, like hands-on and watching the racing. And then my dad was also a bit of a rev head, only like little little hatchbacks and stuff. So and so we were we were exposed to that. And when I talk to people, I, I haven't clarified yet. Well, we're going to get into it. You're obviously based in Queensland, Australia. I see this in Australia, I see it in New Zealand where we're obviously based and definitely in the US. You sort of, as a car enthusiast, tend to go down one of two routes and in Australia it's either the the V8, what was Ford and Holden route or your JDM import. Likewise, you know, the same goes for, for the US and here in New Zealand. So what was it about your family? It sounds like even before you're sort of watching Bathurst with the, the GTRs sort of taking down everyone, you already had that sort of passion for the JDM brands. What, what was it about Japanese cars that kind of did it for you? I think just they were a lot sleeker. They looked a lot nicer. And, yeah, that was it. And and coming from so where I was born in Fiji, like there weren't many V8s. Like it was all Japanese imports. Like there were a lot of V8s actually. I'll correct that. But it was a lot of Japanese imports. So my father was also used to that stuff. And where I grew up in Australia, Ipswich, that was full, like, you know, just your typical Aussie People so like you know my street was full of these guys with you know with GTS Monaros with you know big three oh eights you know stroke to three fifty five and all, all that stuff and there was a guy up the road he had a like a VH Commodore same thing V eight but you know all my dad has was a Pulsar but you know we we loved Japanese stuff we used to see like an R thirty one Skyline on the street and we used to lose our minds yeah it I, I don't know it and in saying that my dad had a Cortina once upon a time so. And he's always only had little cars, like little hatchbacks, like nothing sporty. Dad, he never had anything crazy, but for some reason, like he had that Nissan, and just seeing the Nissans on Mount Panorama, like killing it, it just made us like Nissan fans. And then obviously the JDM scene got a lot bigger, like as as years passed, and the Supras came, and you know then Mazdas came, and then the Sierra, you know at that time the Sierra Cosworths were killing it because turbocharged, so it was pretty much a turbo thing. So as well, so everything turbocharged seemed to be better, faster. Like, a, yeah, yeah, that that probably mirrors my my kind of upbringing. I 
kind of got into cars when turbo Japanese cars were were just sort of starting to find their feet. And for me, it was kind of a no-brainer. You know, there's always been the no replacement for displacement, but I'm like, yeah, there is. It's called a turbocharger. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And I mean, that has really proven time and time again to be to be the case. It was probably not till later that I actually sort of found a bit of a passion for, you know, it was mainly the, the LS V8 as well and sort of started to see the appreciation for, for both both sides of the coin. But, I mean, basically, at the end of the day, for me, if it's fast and powerful, I don't, I'm not really too fussy about how many cylinders it's got or, or what the brand is on it. Let's come back to, obviously, you've given us a bit of an idea there, getting some skill set from growing up with your, your dad around cars and obviously kind of learning how to actually be hands on the tools. When did you sort of decide to go down this route as a, as a career path? Was this sort of, you know, pretty much you had no option, it was already already predefined for you? No, not really. My family are all like academic. My parents are both, they were both like medical, my mum was a nurse and my dad was a pharmacist and then when we came here, my dad changed career paths, but he always, they always used to push us to study, 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 study. Like my my brother and sister both, like you know, got two degrees, and there, one works in the medical field, and the other's a teacher. But I, as a kid, I was you know studying, I was trying, but I just I couldn't. I just used to get distracted by this and that, and I was always had a passion for cars. I actually wanted to be an aircraft engineer, so that's what I was studying for. I just loved going fast. I wanted to work on jets. I didn't really want to fly jets. I wanted to work on them. And then what actually happened is in high school, I think grade nine, I went for work experience through school to this, and I, was, I wanted to be an aircraft engineer, but they sent me to this little workshop like on an airstrip. And all they did is rebuild the motors, the air-cooled, horizontally opposed, you know, four-cylinder Cessna engines. Like Continental, like home yeah, yeah, style. Yeah, yep, yeah, yep. correct. And that's when I first actually got the feel for like working on an engine and seeing seeing crankshafts and seeing conduits and seeing pistons and stuff like that and actually seeing how they work and the rotating assembly and, you know, figuring out how an internal combustion engine works. And I was only young, I was only 14, 15, whatever I was. Then it gave me this fascination of engines. Even though I really loved planes, I even I even sat the exam to get into the Air Force and I passed it. So I was ready to be accepted in. But I, I just had this fascination with these engines and then it kept going. Then one of my cousins bought a Nissan Silvia SR20. Back then, uh, like an S13 SR20 Silvia. And back then there weren't many of those around. And that thing was like, you know, a factory S13, SR20 with a bit of boost. Back then, it was like so fast. And it just blew my mind how fast this car was. And then I started sort of looking more into the automotive field. And then Fast and the Furious came out. And then that was it. I was done. And I knew since I saw Fast and the Furious and then I was there. I just knew this is what I want to do. And that was that. So at that point, what was the path forward once you'd sort of decided where you wanted to head? Okay, so I knew that I had to do an, well, I had to be a mechanic. So my parents still were like, yeah, okay, cool. Do, you know, follow your passion, but you still need to be qualified. So I was like, okay, cool. So I knew I had to do an apprenticeship. So then I, I started looking around at where I could do an apprenticeship. It was a bit difficult to dive like even today it is difficult to dive straight into the performance industry like you can't just walk into a performance shop and say i want to be an apprentice in saying that i have put on a few apprentices you know that have done their time through the shop 
So, you know, if you're lucky, you'll get in. Yeah. Well, let's just talk about that side of things because this has come up a few times on different episodes. Getting into the automotive industry, an apprenticeship as a mechanic is generally kind of the, the obvious route. But particularly with modern vehicles, you know, there's not a lot of, hand, or less, I would say, hands-on work than there used to be sort of 20, 30 years ago. You know, generally, mechanics these days aren't rebuilding a factory engine if something goes wrong. Cam belts are almost a thing of the past. So a lot more of it now is diagnostics. And there's obviously, even with a skilled mechanic, and, and I'm not trying to detract from that skill set, but even a skilled mechanic, there's crossover, but also a lot of difference between the skill set of a mechanic and what you need in the broader range for a performance workshop isn't there yes definitely because we're actually recreating what's already been made so you really need to know everything about what you're working with and um as you said like modern day mechanical is a lot about diagnostic and using scan tools and even like you know down to bleeding the brakes they just hook up these machines and like crack the crack the bleed, bleed nipples and turn these brake bleeding machines on they don't even actually you know, you don't have to pump and hold and crack the nipple anymore. You don't have to do any of that. You know, there's no, there's hardly any manual cars anymore. So you're not working on clutches and you're not have, having to deal with any of that. As you said, there's no cam belt. So you don't know how all that works. You don't need to time an engine anymore. So you don't know how all that sort of stuff works. Yeah. I've told this story, I think, before, but it, it probably sort of bears repeating. Uh, I, I saw maybe the lack of skill in some of the current crop of of mechanics at franchise dealerships really get highlighted when there was a recall on the Toyota 86 and Subaru BRZ. I think there was a couple of years where they had to replace the valve springs. And I mean, let's be honest, it's obviously not a small job. That's quite a, a significant job. And it's a complex engine with the, the the twin cam chain arrangement and obviously it's got quad variable cam control. So I'm not downplaying this is not a simple job, not a five minute job, but I mean I'm on a few of the 8.6 forums and enthusiast clubs and you know, I, I think it's at one point there was a, a success rate of about 50% on cars that successfully had the valve springs replaced and the cam chains put back on and timed up correctly and then the other 50% were sometimes catastrophic failures. And you know, again, not detracting, this is a complex job and it's not something that's done commonly so I understand why it was problematic but take that back 20, 30 years ago, doing cam belts was the norm and you know that would probably form a, a reasonably consistent part of your working week so those skills are I think unfortunately being lost and as a performance workshop these are skills that we need correct yes correct yeah as you pointed out like they will never learn that and then that will only jobs like that they'll only get given to specific technicians or whatever in that dealership like not any everyone and then apprentices were a job is just to oil change or you know do tires or do whatever um but i think in the performance industry the most important thing is and i i stress this to everyone the most important thing is you must understand what you're working on you must understand how it works in order for you to fix it and modify it because you like you need to know like what's going to happen when you change a certain thing, what effects is it going to do? What what you have to do to extract the most out of it? Obviously, in order to know that and in order to achieve that, you must know how the thing works in the first place. And I think that has been completely taken out 
of like mechanics that are being trained these days because they don't know anything like realistically it's and the things are too complex as you said like even for a mechanic these days if they were to pull an engine out of a brz horizontally opposed engine four cams two cylinder heads two chains that's a lot going on like for anybody but not many people these days apprentices or young fellas are going to be able to do anything like that and i think that's a real shame but that's just the way technology is i guess it's it's just the way the ball rolls and being a mechanic if you want to be good you have to want to be good yeah i think what you've touched on there as well it sort of bears repeating in that having an understanding of what you're working on is really really important and this goes into kind of all aspects of the performance automotive industry i've said this repeatedly when it comes to efi tuning we have courses that teach people how to tune efi and it will teach you the fundamentals of how the efi system works and you come out of that and you will you will know how to adjust fuel and ignition and the effects and what you're trying to do to optimize them obviously and we've never tried to downplay this is obviously there's, there's a level of the theory you need to understand and then you obviously also need to put that into practice and become proficient with actually making those changes that's something that only time on the keyboard is going to give you but where I I think I have an advantage and and I'm guessing this goes for you too is that I sort of started with mechanical elements and engine building so I had a really good intimate knowledge of what goes into the engine how the engine operates and then there's that crossover between engine tuning and the mechanical elements and this is where when you have a really thorough knowledge of all of the components and how they all go together when you're trying to fault find a diagnose on the dyno I don't sit there trying to fix an ignition misfire on the laptop when the issue is that there's no ground electrode left on the spark plug or you know you've got a, a coil pack that's faulty or you know, you've got no fuel pressure because the voltage getting to the fuel pumps only 10 and a half volts instead of 14 and that's the stuff that will trip up people without that broader knowledge now it sounds like you were lucky enough to actually get your start with an apprenticeship in a performance workshop as opposed to a franchise dealership. So talk us through how you managed to nail that perfect combination. Okay, so at first I did try just going shop to shop with a resume. I had very minimal experience. I used to work one of my one of my mates, still a very good friend of mine to today. He's a few years older than me, so he used to run just a mechanic shop next to a service station. And I used to go on my school holidays, like when I was in grade 11, grade 12, like at the end of my schooling, when I figured out what I wanted to be a mechanic, I used to go on school holidays and work with him. So I was able to have experience there. So I had a couple of references. I had a couple of references and I just went around. It was so hard. No, no performance shop would even look at me. And they'd be like, oh yeah, sweet, whatever. But then I ended up just to fast track it a bit and to get somewhere instead of doing nothing, I enrolled into a pre-vocational course into the local TAFE, so the college, and I did six months. And that, and at the end of that six months, it was a certif- uh, certificate two in um, light automotive. And uh, during that period, they give you three blocks that you need to go and find work experience. Two week blocks, all up six weeks. Every couple of months, you'd go two weeks here, two weeks here, two weeks here. And I was just going to performance shops. I went to two performance shops and this other shop, which is a paddle shop that did performance cars that one day back then a lot of highway racing used to happen so we used to we used to go hang out in my cousin's car that s13 we used to go out and i was lucky enough to meet the guys that had started 101 and i said hey like you know you're they they had just started like literally just started and i'm just like 
hey, like, you know, if you want, I can come and help you guys. Like, you know, for two weeks, I have to do work experience. And um, they're like, yeah, yeah, sweet. No worries. So I went there and I did my work experience and, I, and it was jamboree time. It just so happened that I pretty much got two of their cars ready for jamboree. And they were like, oh, well, you want a job? And I was like, yeah, I do. <laughs> and that was that. Sounds perfect. And I was lucky enough, I guess, that for anyone that wants to get into the industry, you got to get in and just show, like, I was just there for work experience and I ended up getting a job and actually I had already set up all three of my blocks for work experience and each one I went to offered me a job. So, but I took 101 at the time. It was actually, it's actually, it was actually 10 to 1. Like that was what the business name was and it became 101. And it was one. It was called One Hundred and One Motor Cafe back then. So it was like a like a cafe and a performance shop. So they were trying to really do the whole. So not just in combination. Yeah, they were they were trying to do the whole Fast and Furious vibe. Yeah, yeah. And I said with Taiwanese, so a guy named William Wu. He was the he was the starter. He he's he made One Hundred and One Motor Cafe. It's called One Hundred and One Motor Cafe and Auto Mechanics. And um, so he put me on as an apprentice, and I just worked under a couple of guys. So a guy named Stefano and a fellow named Robert Novak. So Robert uh, Stefano taught me a lot of stuff just general mechanical stuff and like just common sense how to use tools like you know what tool to pick you know when you're using something that I think that's very important like you know having an array of tools and knowing what to pick and just like just very general knowledge stuff like putting bearings in conrods and you know cleanliness and you know how you know making sure everything's clean and you know just stuff like that like how to use tools how to hold them how to how to do this easier, how to do that easier, how things work. And then Rob, Robert Novak in the drag racing scene in Australia is a quite a he's quite a quite a big name in tuning. He sort of backed it down a bit, but um I was lucky enough to be his apprentice as well, which is where I sort of stood back. It, me being an apprentice, I had to do a lot of I was working, I was on the tools, but I was lucky enough that Rob had a a deal with the so this is when the second owners took over 101. They, so the first owners only owned it for like two and a half years and the second guys, they then they bought 101 and they ran it for about two years and then that time I was just working under Rob and he had made a deal with them, even the previous guys. So after hours, he'd tune race cars and his mate's cars and stuff in his own time or whatever and I just used to sit back. I I used to stay there and just watch everything he did. And back then there was no such thing. You know, the dinos were very primitive. They didn't give you much data. All they gave you was power and a talk and that's it. You know, AFR reading. Hardly any ECUs had onboard Lambda at that time. Like this is, um, we're talking 20 years ago, you know. Nothing had not control. Yeah, I grew up in that same era. That It was very basic compared to what we what we see today. Simpler times, but you know, it's interesting I look back on that and these days I would very rarely consider installing an ECU that didn't have closed loop knock and closed loop lambda as standard. Like those are what I consider to be non negotiables really. Yet I look back and it was very seldom ECUs for the mainstream had closed loop lambda control or wideband lambda control incorporated. And, you know, we could still develop a, a great reliable tune. Generally, we'd just be adding a little bit more of a safety buffer because that was necessary. I just want to roll back. There's a couple of takeaways that I think are worth just coming back to and, and really digging into there. I'm guessing here it's pretty clear that you showed a good work ethic with those two-week block courses given you said that you were offered jobs by all three. And this is something that I think it, 
it's really important no matter what you're doing for work experience and often that's going to start by sweeping floors and emptying rubbish bins. Correct, yeah. But there's menial tasks that seem unimportant, but the attitude with which you take on those jobs and you know being able to look outside the square and, and actually see the bigger picture. And what I'm talking about by that, I've, I've had work experience guys who are emptying rubbish bins and as they're emptying the rubbish bin and walking it through the workshop, they'll step over a pile of rags on the floor and then continue and throw out the rubbish. I'm like, come on, let's open our eyes this is clearly rubbish. It is part of the job, even if it's not actually detailed on a checklist. It's that sort of that sort of attitude, those who can see that big picture and do those little things that aren't necessarily strictly asked of them, that sticks out to an employer. And we see that attitude. And that's the difference between being offered a position and you know getting through your two weeks, ticking a box and, and really being no further ahead. So I think that's really important. The other element there that um, I think is worth digging into is your uh, sort of training or apprenticeship outside of time under Robert, I think you said his name is Robert yeah, Novak. Yeah, Rob Novak, yeah. So, you know, most guys probably younger want to get out of work at 5.01, go and hit the beers and, you know, go partying with their mates. And, you know, that's not strictly going to get you ahead. I know that's appealing, but, you know, if you really want to get ahead, that unpaid sort of training and learning from one of the best you know there's no price you can put on that and obviously look at what that's done for where you're at now so I just thought I want to come back and pick up those couple of points because easy to overlook but so important 100 percent yeah right so you've completed this apprenticeship and you've obviously because you've been at 101 motorsport you've benefited from that broader range of performance-based skills you own the place now. Talk us through how, how that happened. So pretty much the, the guys that owned it second, they just ran it for a couple of years and kind of just lost interest and then they were selling. And I actually wanted to buy it when they bought it, but I was still an apprentice. I had a fair idea. Uh, like I had pretty, I was pretty confident that I could do it, but you know, I'm, I'm glad I, I waited, obviously, because as you grow, as you work, you, you do improve, you pick up more skills, whatever. So I was about 20, I was 23 at the time, 22 actually, and it was getting sold. I was just lucky because at the time, I, everyone had quit. I was the only staff and we had this one guy that used to come in and out and blah, 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 like just help, like, you know, just kind of like a subcon, like a subcontractor. And, um, and that was it. It was just me and him. And I just went, look, like, and they were trying to sell it for a certain amount. I just said, I'll pay you this much. And they were like, cool. And so I was lucky. My father actually helped me fund that. Like, I'm, I'm not going to say I did it all my own. He lent me the money to do it. Like, he got it. Well, he I borrowed against their home, my family home, my, my parents' home. Yeah, he, he got a loan and bought me the business. And I just did the repayments. And I just went from there. And uh, yeah, and that that's how that happened, and that was in 2008, so yeah, 15 years ago now. Okay, so a lot's obviously happened over 15 years. Let's bring us up to speed. Can you kind of give us the 30,000-foot view of 101 Motorsport now? Firstly, where are you based? How big is the premises, and how many staff have you got? So 101 Motorsport has always been – so I've, I've changed a shop a couple of times just you know finding the right shop we've always been in the logan area slacks creek underwood which is it's kind of the hub of sort of automotive and mechanical stuff there's a lot of shops around it's very 
convenient running a business, a performance, a performance business where we are. Always been in that area. Now the current shop we've been in for about four years, and I think that's the forever shop. Had a few dramas with council and EPA and stuff in the previous ones. You know, a lot of guys around here have the same dramas, but I'm lucky that where we are now, no dramas. Is this, can I go out on a limb here, any of these dramas related to noise from dyno tuning? Yes, a lot of, a lot of dramas, yeah, yeah, so. I, I lived, I lived that life for a fair while and it's just such a chore with trying to keep other tenants happy. And I mean, obviously, uh, dyno tuning can be pretty obnoxious for those around you. I remember when I first got my dyno, we were in a little shop and it was only temporary. I think we had six months left on the lease. So there was absolutely no point in building an expensive dyno cell to try and keep things quiet. And we thought, you know, this dyno, hey, maybe to start with, we might be using it two or three times a week. Well, you know, as soon as we got out, we're using it more like two or three times a day and it didn't take long to start pissing off the other businesses and I mean credit to them like absolutely if I'd been if the roles had been reversed I wouldn't be super stoked but you know then you've got the council turning up and you deal with those and yeah I couldn't wait to get into my actual shop where we did build we did our absolute best to build a, a quiet dyno cell but I mean even then when you're t- dynoing drag cars with open exhausts I mean it's all but impossible to keep it truly quiet so you know we still had the occasional occasional complaint which um, is just never fun to deal with yeah I mean in in where we are in probably a two kilometer radius there's probably six or seven dyno tuners and one of the guys who's like right next to me he's he's actually going through all the all those problems now his neighbors are complaining and he's in a unit complex so he's you know he's they're wall to wall they have people behind them beside them and those guys are complaining but we're in a freehold building I think actually the other element that's easy to overlook for tuners who are thinking about buying a dyno, you look at the the price of the dyno and maybe it's $100,000, maybe it's $160,000, whatever, and you're sort of like stretching to buy that maybe and looking at your financing options or whatever that may be. And it's much, much bigger than that because you could easily be spending the same, if not more, than you paid for the dyno to actually build a, a proper cell with noise, sound deadening, you know, f- extraction fans and, and all of that. And that's the part, if you haven't actually gone through it, it's easy to overlook that and then find you're in a world of trouble, particularly if you're sort of tight on your finances. Just coming back to the fact you said you've got so many dyno shops in such a small area around you does that hurt your ability to to bring in work or is it a benefit it doesn't hurt the ability i guess one thing is i know a couple of them like i'm i'm the way i roll is i just try to be friendly with everyone like i know i do know a couple of them but everyone has their own customer base and there's there's certainly no lack of work there's enough out there for everybody to eat it's not really cutthroat like we don't need to cut each other's grass to get ahead. Everyone's just got their own thing going on. You know, obviously if you, if you are the only one, then it makes it more exclusive to the area. But it certainly, it doesn't hurt anyone, I think, at all. Like um, I think that all the shops around us are quite busy. Like I know, you know, one of them is like they just specialise in a certain car and the, one of them's just he just hires his dyno out to people. And, like you know, lots, lots of tuners are coming up. There's all these new tuners popping up and, as you said, um, I think you and I have a bit of a, an advantage as, you know, we we work from the ground up and there's, there's these tuners popping up 
who have not done that. So they just think they can rely on your, on your closed loop lambda and your closed loop knock and just send these things to the moon. And I think that if you're in a large populous area with a large customer base, obviously, as you say, there's enough work to go around. You know, if you tried to put six tuning shops here in Queenstown where we've got a permanent population of about 30,000 people, I mean, that obviously is, is just not going to work. So, I mean, you have to be a little sensible about it. I think the other element with this as well, which goes pretty much without saying, is if you build a strong reputation and you're turning out good work, that word of mouth is your best marketing tool. And people talk, there's still forums, there's, there's Facebook groups, and the tuners who are turning out good work rise to the top and people people know who they can trust. Uh, just talking about that newer generation of tuner coming through, and I think that's that's worth touching on a little bit as well. I see a lot of tuners coming into the scene. You know, maybe they're tuning their own cars and their mates' cars to start with. And obviously these days, uh, good quality fuels like E85 are so prevalent. And I think what that's doing is giving a false sense of security and confidence because, you know, a turbocharged car on E85, I mean, you can break it, but you're going to have to try reasonably hard. It's pretty tolerant. If, you, if your ratio is a little lean, probably not going to be able to add too much timing and make it knock. It, it's a pretty safe fuel. So I think that builds up this false sense of bravado and confidence that like I'm, I'm bulletproof. Look at all these cars I've tuned and, and they all make heaps of power. And the scary part for me is that's cool until you give one of those tuners uh, pump fuel and maybe a poor grade of pump fuel, a turbocharged vehicle. And I mean, a lot of these these tuners as well, I, I almost exclusively rely on audio knock detection when I'm on the dyno. There's very few cars that I'll tune without that and only then because I know that the factory knock system is is accurate. So I'm always listening for knock. I've got a very finely tuned ear to that. And you know, I, I know when I'm on that edge and I can pull it back. I mean, it scares the hell out of me watching some of them tune with no knock control. I've seen videos on YouTube and I can audibly hear the car knocking and you know, you're sort of you're cringing. So yeah, again, I'm not I'm not saying obviously we teach people how to tune, so I'm not saying that it's impossible. I think it's just again comes back to a wider, broader understanding of what's going on and particularly understanding how good E eighty five is, how bad normal low grade pump fuel is, and what the implications are going to be for that, what tools and what sensors you need to help safeguard while you're tuning. Right, we got a little bit off track there, but yeah, you know, I I needed to dig into it while it was while the opportunity was there. While we're on that one, I'm still a firm believer of E85 has single-handedly saved the SR20. <laughs> well, I, I'd go one step further. That and the VE cylinder yeah. head. God, yeah. Mm. I, I, I obviously, from my background, I am a Mitsubishi guy through and through and I still have a, a real soft spot for the 4G63 uh, yeah the technology's moved on and there are way better engines these days but back when I was running my performance workshop I would probably tune 4 or 5 SR20 DTs for every 4G63 they were just cheaper and more popular 
And, you know, you sort of, the combination, I'm probably going to get offside here with a whole bunch of SR20 fans, but um, this is the reality that as I saw it, you, you put the same combination of parts, similar cam profile, similar size turbocharger, injectors, all of the works that you'd put on a 4G63 and it'd make 300, 350 kilowatts at the wheels on pump gas. And you do all that on the same, on an SR20 DET, and it'd just be significantly down, you know, maybe 50 kilowatts less. And I sort of, I just could never really see the attraction. And then I was tuning for a controlled race series, and I'd been tuning this S14 for a few years, had an SR20 DET, nothing particularly special, Garrett GT3582 Turbo, made good power, but you know, nothing to write home about. And then um, they put the VE cylinder head on it, and that was my very first exposure to the VE cylinder head. And on like five pound less boost, it made like another 80 or 100 kilowatts. Yeah. It was just out <laughs> yeah. the gate crazy. Mm. And I was like, what the hell just happened here? And so that was my eye opener. Obviously, we've got a SR20 VE turbo combo in our 86 endurance car. So I kind of feel like I'm pretty well versed with, with that engine now. So yeah, still with its own set of problems. It's nothing, nothing's ever perfect, but it's certainly a game changer. And having that shaft mounted rocker and no problems with the rockers popping off is also a, another game changer. Very hard to find parts, but like it, going back to that rockers, very hard. Like last time I needed rockers for a VE, a guy in New Zealand had two sets and I just bought both sets. And I just went, give it, give it to me. Yeah. Yeah, we've talked about this with um, for a Mark from uh, Mazworks on a previous episode, and you can't buy these parts new from Nissan anymore, and it is problematic because they do wear, so it's a challenge. But anyway, we digress. So let's get back to 101 Motorsport. How many have you got on your staff now? I have two full-time qualified mechanics, a manager, myself, and then our fabricator. But here's his own business. He just rents... He does mostly our work, but he rents the back part of my shop. So our shop, my shop is, I think, just under 700 square metres. Yeah, it's kind of divided up in a few different sections. Like I've got the engine room and the dyno room in the front. Behind that is Dan, who is Fab Lab. He's our fabricator. He's got his back section. We also do our own fabrication in our section, but Dan does majority of our big stuff, as in um, roll cages or intercooler, custom intercooler, piping. He'll make intercoolers, you know all the sheet metal work, tubs, diffs, you know, four-link, ladder bar, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, firewalls, engine, mount, like mounting engines, gearboxes, you you know, you name it. It's from back to front. That's him. And on our side, we have obviously just our office, four hoists, and our workshop and our fabrication area at the back. So, yeah, that's us. All, all up, there's five of us. When you – we took over this business 15 years back – and you kind of alluded to the fact that it was just you at that time. It was, yeah, yeah. Uh, there must have been a pretty steep learning curve. You've sort of come out of an apprenticeship. Obviously, you've got the skill set there. But, I mean, something we quite often talk about on the podcast is you know, that skill set of actually spinning spanners, tuning cars, building engines is uh, quite dramatically different to the skill set of running a successful business, you know, invoicing, uh, emailing customers, pricing work. All of that other side of the business that's so easy to completely ignore. So how, how how big a challenge was it for you to learn that? Well, at first, it was all just handwritten stuff, like handwritten invoices and blah, 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 and then that sort of. And at the time, one of the guys, Sarev, who is now the owner of you know, the Oceana College of Technology, who I built, me and him built that Supra together. 
Oh, we, we, yeah, we're referencing here a Supra that uh, we actually have on our YouTube channel. It's an interview with, with Varun for that. So we might put a link to that and we might talk about that Supra in a bit more detail shortly anyway. Anyway, so at the time he was the, for the second owners, he used to manage the shop. And then he had to he had stuff to deal with, so he was away for about a year. And during that period is when I took over. And when I took over, then he came back, and then he was like, "Hey, do you want me to manage the shop?" And I was like, "Yeah, sweet." So I like so I didn't so when I took over, I was by myself. But then he came back, and he did he did manage the shop for me for a few years. And you know, together we sort of knew what we had to do to you know invoice and. So you weren't kind of throwing in the deep end. You you had had some support there for the the business side of things from someone who kind of already knew the inner workings of that shop. Yes, and he's very good business minded. So he's he's really good at all that stuff. So I was lucky enough to um be there and him to be able to you know run me through all, how all that worked. And um we we did that. We kind of did that together. I've always had a manager, someone to take care of it. But in saying that. I have also done a lot of that myself as a businessman. I'm I'm pretty hopeless. I'll be honest. Um, <laughs> is it, but it is a it is a very important aspect of obviously running your own business. And still to this day, I'm I'm not the best businessman. I just like doing what I do. Well, I think most of us in this industry uh, don't kind of get into starting and running a performance shop because we see you know potentially huge dollar signs. No, definitely you know, not. <laughs> It's it's not yeah. it's probably not the most lucrative industry if you're really focused on becoming the next millionaire. Uh, so we do it because we're passionate about it and we enjoy it. And that kind of the skill set there, as I sort of alluded to, is different to what we we necessarily need to run a successful business. So sometimes getting that combination can be quite tricky. Sounds like you've got a, a good way. You've you've gone about that a good way, getting in a manager to do that side of things. We haven't actually touched on the specific services you offer, but you know, it sounds like from the chat so far, pretty much all encompassing anything and everything. Pretty much. And it doesn't it's not narrowed down to a certain vehicle either or engine type. It is predominantly JDM. Most of our work is kind of the medium to big build sort of stuff. Don't really do many small things now. So it it'd be mostly like the the run of the mill stuff would be supply fit and tune an ecu with the uh, chorus you know with the necessary sensors and fuel system upgrade you know turbo upgrade in a cooler custom piping custom exhaust all that stuff and then it's predominantly gdr stuff what we do like the 32 to 34 to so the RB20, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, let, let's clarify because obviously the, the 32 to 34 is massive in Australia. If we're looking at North America, they're more focused around their R35 market. So I just wanted to get into that. Yes, yeah. Okay. So it's uh, it's mostly like the RB platform. But in saying that, we also do a lot of RB, um, a lot of R35 stuff as well. So it's just GDR in general. And then a lot of 2J stuff, a lot of Hon- a little bit of Honda stuff, a lot of rotary stuff. And yeah, that will range from anything to engine building to building you a race car to, you know, just a lot of it's just, you know, someone's booking in for a tune or, you know, stuff like that. In terms of choosing the sort of work that you take on, I think... If I look back to the start of my business, I was sort of in a situation where I had to take on anything that came through the door because 
I had to make money to keep the the lights on and put food on the table. So I, I couldn't really, I wasn't able to be fussy. And the other element with that is where we were based, we had about half a million people population and there was maybe two or I think three tuning shops. So there wasn't the ability to say, hey, look, we specialise in just RB26 based builds. That, that's all we're going to do. Or you know, Alice, Alice Holden, whatever that might have been. We didn't have that benefit and we did have to do everything. But as we sort of grew, the reputation improved and we could be a little bit fussier with the the jobs we're taking on. What I found was there was a big benefit for me in turning away some of the, the lower end cars. And I mean, this might sound a little bit harsh, but when you get a car that comes to you for a dyno tune and literally it rolls off the trailer, take one look at it and you know that you're going to spend the next eight hours fixing all of the problems with it because the intercooler's held on with zip ties. That work is really frustrating. It's not rewarding for me as a tuner. And ultimately, it doesn't work well for the customer because they're expecting to come in for a $800 or $1,000 tune. And you know, you might tell them at the start, like, hey, it's going to be more because this, this, this and this clearly I can see right now are going to need to be fixed. So it just ends up being a horrible situation for the car owner as well as the shop owner. So I found kind of as I grew, focusing on the the sort of the higher end work, it gave us cleaner work that was more satisfying, we got better results, customer was happy, we were happy and we were also making a bit more money as well. And then the other, the flip side of that, I'm interested to get your perspective, for me what I'm always interested in is building the next big thing, you know, where can we push the limits, where can we push the boundaries, where can we try and break a record, do something no one else has done and that's cool, that's what drives me and what I'm passionate about. What I also found is that it's really, really hard to make good money doing those sort of jobs because they're so big, it's difficult, if not impossible, to quote accurately at the start because you just don't know how the job's going to play out. How's your experience been with those sort of jobs? Because I know you, you, you're involved with some of them. So you've you've hit the nail on the head there. So it's a very delicate balancing act. So we do pick and choose, obviously. And as you said, the ones that, the, the builds that are done in their backyard and have these little niggly issues, you always do find these other issues. My manager, uh, Mo, Muzi is what we call him, he often says I'm too nice to people because I'll just, like, I'm, I'm always one to help you out. Like if you need a hand, I'll help you out. Like, but our shop is full. Like it is full of mostly big builds. and But we do occasionally take something small in just to keep the ball rolling because as you said, the big builds, it's big money, but it's very slow turnaround. It's a very lengthy process. Like you, that car stuck in your workshop is taking up room. It's doing all that. So, and it is, but at the end of the day, it is cool to do it. Like you're always trying to do something different. Like, you know, at the moment, like we've got a couple of a thousand horsepower GDRs, like or the last ones, all the previous ones we've done. It's always something different. Like we're trying to do something different. Like, oh, this one's got a big single GT or G45. Oh, no, we're not going to do that this time. We're going to put two big twins. Oh, no, something different this time. We're going to do big low mount twins. Like, we're going to make custom manifolds and put them like that. We're always trying, like, you know, this one's got a Samsonis gearbox. Okay, let's let's try an album. So let, let's do a PPG. Like, you know, let's let's try something else. Let's... Let's put a different diff in the back of this one. Let's let's do a different fuel system. Yeah. I think that what you're talking about there as well, 
your customers end up benefiting from your broader range of experience because you've now tried all of these parts, all of these different combinations. And you know, slowly over time, you start narrowing in on a path of like, oh, you want this? Well, this is the best way to achieve that for the least amount of money or with you know, the, the broadest power band or whatever your, your target may be. So I think that's important. I also just want to come back because that conversation about um, the, the sort of low-end builds, and I don't want to put off the younger enthusiasts who are listening to this podcast and you know maybe there's one or two out there who do have their intercooler held on with cable ties like no disrespect we all start somewhere and you know I probably look back at some of the stuff I did sort of 20 plus years ago and probably cringe but you know again you you don't know what you don't know back then and you kind of do the best you can but I think it's all about that's fine to start with but always look at how can I improve next time how can I do better look at what other people are doing you know there's just so much information out there to there's no real excuse not to be able to learn how to improve and do things at a better level a lot of it is this common like and this is another thing I really drill into like my staff and if I have an apprentice who are, it is common sense like you look at something and you just you look at it and go well that's shit how do I fix that like and so one thing that we really pride ourselves on is um like form like you know everyone says you know function over form or whatever we're we're sort of the opposite we'll form and then we'll we'll find a way to make that work I don't care like what it takes like you make that work so and in Queensland it's a lot different like it's so different Queensland like Brisbane to what it is down south in Sydney they are it's like Sydney are number one and they'll just pull everything out shave the engine bay blah 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 like so we don't like you know up here it is like you know we will make them look as good as we can but no one really wants to pull the engine out of their you know $200,000 R34 and like shave the tubs and take it all away they want it to all be sort of original like up here is a little bit different you're not building a show car uh, well we are but we're not like it's a bit different like, up here we're a bit raw, more raw and definitely there's not as much money up here as there is down south that's a, that's the other thing so there's a lot less people spending that sort of money like and we do have the occasional one and that's when we you know that's when we we're able to do something big and something good but yeah a lot of the time you just can't compete because a lot of people don't actually spend that much money and then so we do make the most of what we can with the minimal that we can do to like I'm lucky that a lot of our customers don't really work on a budget. Not anymore. Like back in the day, like as you said, you gotta start from somewhere. I was exactly like you. I used to just take anything and everything but I think that has built me into who I am today because now I can do a rotary I can do your 2J I can do your I can do your Honda I can do your RB I can do your LS I can do your Barra I can I can do your Mercedes I can do everything but in saying that we do pick and choose so if someone comes to us and says oh you know I have a RX7 I want a 13b i want to make 700 horsepower it's like yep i can do it like um but if someone comes to me and goes oh i have a standard engine i want to make 500 horsepower i've got five thousand dollars then nah, you know I, I can't like and but slowly as things are progressing people are starting to get a bit smarter so we're lucky enough as like you know back in the day i'd say five six seven years ago then you do get the ones that come in and they get off the trail and you just like put your hand on your head and go, oh, my God, like, what have I got myself into here? And then you do spend all day fighting all those gremlins, you know, misfires and leaks and 
pipes popping off and, you know. And then you spend the next three hours cleaning up the oil off the dino bay floor as well, which is always a, it's always a good time. As time is progressing, like, you know, young guys are going to get better. The more you do it, the better you're going to get. We all start somewhere. Yeah, and then guys who are doing it in their garage, everyone is getting smarter. So so on that subject, it is slowly getting better. Like, oh, I'm lucky that I don't, you know, not that I don't want to do the lower end stuff, but we don't really see the lower end stuff anymore. Like it doesn't even come to our door. I think there's a natural progression with a shop that has a reputation and that natural progression is more towards the higher end builds and and that's kind of, you know, again, we do this because we're passionate about it. That's what we want to be involved in because it's more satisfying. I just wanted to take a moment out of our interview with Varun here and talk about a package deal that we're offering, uh, which is going to be perfect for those who have a real thirst for motorsport education. That is our VIP package. This is a really special package in that you're going to get access to every single course we currently offer. That's great, but on top of that, you're also going to get free access to every course we ever produce in the future. You will never pay for another course. So right now, that includes access to all of our tuning, our wiring, our engine building and our car setup courses as well as our 3D modelling and CAD courses. Uh, Well over $4,000 worth of those courses already. We've always got a list of courses that we are going to produce in the future and if we just look at a handful of those, we've got around $3,000 worth of future courses that we are currently developing. We're adding around about three or four courses every year and on top of this, you're also as a VIP member going to get lifetime access to our gold member webinars. We hold these every week. These are a live webinar where we cover a particular topic in the automotive performance industry. If you can't watch live, as a gold member you can also review these in our archive where we've got over 350 hours of existing content. As a VIP member to say thanks, we're also going to send you out a t-shirt and a sticker pack. Total value on that package is over 8 thousand US dollars. Normally we offer it for 2,197 US dollars and you can use the coupon code 101 Motorsports 200. That is going to get you $200 off that deal. Now I understand this is still a fairly sizable chunk of cash. We do have a range of payment plan options. You don't have to come up with the full amount in one lump sum. We also still cover you with our 60 day no questions asked money back guarantee. So if you purchase and decide it's not quite what you expected, let us know and we will give you a full refund of the purchase price. Now I know this package is definitely not going to be for everyone but for those who have got a real thirst for performance automotive knowledge, this is the best option for you. We'll put a link to this package as well as that coupon code in the show notes. Let's get back to our chat with Varun now. Let's move on and I want to talk a a little bit about your dyno setup because we spoke before we started recording this and you're lucky enough to actually have two dynos. You've got a rolling road and a hub dyno? Yeah, correct. So they're both in the same room, all-wheel drive, mainline, rolling road, premium dyno and then the two-wheel drive, mainline, pro hub. Mainline dynos are just so good. I've had, I'm not going to say names, but I've had previous dinos i've worked on all other previous dinos and touching back on you know the epa and stuff in noise i went through a phase of in my old shop where they where the council fully put a ban on me i couldn't do any dino tuning 
until I had built a room and blah, 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 just because of the complaints. During that period, I was lucky enough that a few of my friends who I've known for a long time, Mark Godzilla Motorsport, a good mate of mine, uh, Carlos, who is Millennium Motorsport, who is now BPP. I don't know if you know Billet Performance Products, BPP. No, not on a He does like fuel rails and coil kits and stuff. Really high quality, really good quality stuff. And Godzilla Motorsport. That's Mark Jacobs. Jacobson. Yeah, Mark Jacobson. Yep. So they. I remember him from my uh, drag racing days. Yeah, yeah. So I was. I'm lucky enough to be good friends with both of those guys, and I used both of their dinos at the time. I had an old, like old analog dino, and then I used Marks. I used Carlos's, and Carlos had a mainline, and I used that mainline, and I was just like, "Wow, this this dino is so good." Just the data acquisition you get from it, the back to back testing, how consistent they were how yeah ever since i've had a mainline sorry um not meaning to blow their horn or anything but the support is second to none everything is just so good without trying to make this into an ad for mainline my experience has been exactly the same we came from from my old shop i i used a, a dynapack hub dyno which the dyno actually was was excellent the problem that i had with the dynapack dyno was you were just constantly with the higher power build just constantly coming up against the torque limit which is an inherent limit in in that design of dyno and that was a problem when we we're starting to build these high horsepower drag cars when we started high performance academy we were fortunate enough that todd and craig actually did support us very very well and we put just a four-wheel drive rolling road from them all started with a two-wheel drive then then upgraded to four-wheel drive and then since we've upgraded again to their four-wheel drive pro hub dyno but I mean your point there about their customer service they will bend over backwards to answer questions and help you I would argue the nicest guys and the best customer service in the dyno industry hands down. I can ring Craig and Todd any time of the night and they'll, if they don't answer they'll message me back or they'll ring me back later and they're so good like they'll help you fix whatever you need to fix like they're, and they're very experienced like you know Todd is a very very high end tuner like you know he knows everything you know and Craig also you know knows a lot and um they're good guys I'll never get any dino any other dino ever again converted for life I assume that the the pro hub was purchased for the higher horsepower stuff where you're starting to run into problems with traction on the rolling road? Yeah, it's for the big power stuff. We do do a lot of big power because we do mostly a lot of drag racing stuff and obviously drag racing stuff is big power stuff. So, you know, on the all-wheel drive dyno, I do always find like for a street car, someone that's going to be driving it a lot, the rolling road is better because you have the inertia of the wheels like you know to actually simulate that you are driving on the street it's a bit hard to hold a hub dyno at a steady state at a very low load uh, you know they start as you know they start bucking around and carrying on and and you can't sort of really tune the cruising elements i think that's sort of something that you know most people kind of would not think too much about but that sensitivity to be able to tune those really light load areas and what i'm talking by that about by that is you know, sort of like let's say 1500 to three three and a half thousand rpm that area where you're cruising along on a flat piece of road or even even marginally downhill this really uh, highlights it on the road you're just backing out you've almost got the throttle closed but not quite those areas of the map 
are very, very difficult to get to on any type of dyno, but uh, a hub dyno even more so because what Varun's talking about here with the lack of inertia, what that means is you need a certain amount of torque to keep the dyno operating at a certain speed, and that speed relates to what the engine RPM is where we're mapping. So as you want to go lower and lower in the load, you obviously close the throttle, but at that point, at some point, the engine stops making enough torque to maintain dyno speed, and the dyno simply slows down. With the rolling road, you've got that inertia of the rollers, so while the engine's no longer making enough torque to keep that constant speed, it doesn't immediately slow down. It's a much slower process. You get a a better look, a better snapshot of those light load areas. And for people who are thinking, well, why does this matter? It does, because for a street-driven car, you are going through these areas. And if you can't tune them, it's almost certainly going to be either too rich or too lean. And there's nothing worse than sort of getting to that point where you're just about to completely close the throttle and the car starts bucking around and just, just feels horrible. So for me, that's a, you know, that's a no-brainer. So yeah, the rolling road definitely superior for, for that side of things. What sort of power level do you find that the rolling road starts to become problematic for traction? This also comes down to what kind of car, what kind of engine, what kind of turbo, because Things that just that are pretty aggressive that come on boost that the power band is very like sharp like things that come on like a light switch it's, it is very hard to make them hook up even if they're making you know five hundred horsepower five fifty six six hundred horsepower that's where I can have dramas with cars also depends on the tires there's so many variables on a rolling road what kind of tires they are how big they are how you're strapping it down the heat like how much air is in the tires like so it's so many so um to be honest anything over 700 650 if i think it's going to make more than 650 700 i'll just put it straight on the hub but if it's uh, if it's going to be a street car that is going to be daily driven or whatever cruised around i will start it on the roller dyno then um i'll and if it's all wheel drive i'll go 1200 horsepower on the roller dyno no no dramas all wheel drive is easy like GDRs and, you know, Evos or whatever, straight on the rollers. And if they want a bigger figure, we've found like back-to-back, I've done back-to-back testing, I've taken it off the rollers and I've put it on the hub. It's about 15%. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that kind of matches what I saw Yeah, with, with ours as well. So yep. sometimes if people just want a big figure, I'll just take it off the rollers and I'll put it on the hub and I'll go, here you go, you can have your big figure. The internet bragging right number. Yeah, yeah, correct. But yeah, it's about, about 700 horsepower. Anything on a two-wheel drive car, and then also the advantage of big power stuff, putting it on the hub, like being able to have, you do take away the other aspects, the tire, the wheels and the tires and the strapping down, you take away all those other elements. So you have a more accurate tune on big power stuff because it is back to back every single time. You'll just do that. You've taken away all those variables. So when you're doing big power stuff, like power tuning in general, really, to be honest, is better on the hub dyno. It doesn't matter what power level, but to get that drivability right. And like, you know, if, if I'm doing flat shift, you know, I can, because you do need that inertia, like a flat shift manual, so I can bang that on the on the rollers. You can't do that on the hub. Big power autos, I can, I can punch through the gears on the hub. Like I can do a full simulated drag pass on the hub, you know, add 2,000 horsepower, no dramas. It's just basically different products for for different purposes. I think that the thing that uh, was an eye-opener for me with the, going from the Dynapack hub dyno to the rolling road 
was all of those things you were just talking about for consistency, the type of tyre, the tyre pressure. Now the tyre pressure also changes uh, as you go through a dyno tuning session because the tyres heat up, so the pressure increases. The tyre compound gets stickier as it, as it heats up, so again that changes. And then I was quite often tuning cars that were developed over maybe a, a couple of years. So the car might come back three or four times as the owner fitted different turbos or camshafts or whatever it might have been. And I found that problematic with the rolling road. And this isn't mainline, this is just the rolling road in and of itself. You had to strap the car the same. What happens if the customer comes back and it's now got a different brand of tyre that's either stickier or less sticky? You know, all of these affect the power reading. And the last thing you want is the customer to go away and put in a different turbo and a different set of cams that on paper should be making another 50 kilowatts. And you do a baseline and it's down 20 kilowatts over where it was last time. So straight away you're scratching your head like, well, what, what's gone wrong here? Is the engine, you know, is the engine down on power? Is there an actual physical mechanical problem with it? Or is it just the way we've strapped the car on the dyno or some inconsistency there? So these are challenges that need to be kept in mind, whereas obviously the hub dyno just takes that element out of it. The back-to-back consistency is guaranteed, and the run-to-run consistency as well is second to none, as I find anyway. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm interested in your technique. When you've completed a tune on the dyno, particularly if it's a street car, maybe you've used the rolling road, to get that drivability dialed in. Do you also confirm that tune out on the road just to make sure that everything you saw on the dyno does does match in the real world? Yeah, it depends. Obviously, a lot of the cars, you know, things that are making 1,000 plus horsepower, I'm not taking that out on the street to test that. <laughs> so yeah. yes and no. Some cars, while you're rolling, you might have a bit of, as you know, you might have a bit of dramas with the transient throttle in some cars. It might feel a little bit dicky as you're cruising around or you know all a lot of cars these days have no idle control they take the idle the iacvs off and they take all that off and you know if you have drive by wire then you know that doesn't matter you know a lot of things are drive by wire these days but you just want to make sure that they cruise okay they still when you slam on the brakes that the engine doesn't stall and you know because that you can't do that on the dyno Stuff like that, like sometimes, hardly ever, if I'm having difficulty with a certain car, I'd like to check. But you do always find that um, tuning cars on the dyno, especially turbocharged things that are throttle over map, they are always different on the street for some bloody reason all the time. So when that happens, then yeah. And especially um, now these days, as you said, everything's got closed loop lambda and closed loop knock and all that stuff but um and then you can set up your engine protection parameters like lean protection and a lot of the thing a lot of things that one thing that happens a lot with 32 to 34 gdrs with factory sumps is you start giving them a real aggressive power curve and it pushes the oil away from the from the pickup and then you find like when it's accelerating the oil pressure goes low so you have to just you obviously don't get that on the dyno because you're not moving. Sometimes we have to check that just to make sure, like, you know, then implement engine protection functions. So if the, if the oil pressure does go low, it will cut it and things like that, you know. Like, But these come along with, if I'm now, if I'm building a GDR of that sort of caliber, I'll just say, mate, we're going to pull your engine out. We're going to do an extended sump with baffles. Like, that's just tough titties. It is what it is. Yeah, I think you, you sort of learn that the weaknesses that just have to be addressed in certain certain types of car. You do have to 
take that on the street and figure out what's going on. But yeah, look, I, I do sometimes take them for a drive. I, I'd send one of my mechanics, Cameron. He's pretty good at um taking something for a drive and just making sure it's all good. He kind of knows what I need to look for. Pretty much, I just get him to take it for a drive, quick rip around the block. I just check the logging, make sure it's all good because depending on the time of the day and the you know what season it is how much power this thing makes it could be just using up all the air in the in the room and then you go you go out on the street and all of a sudden it's lean so sometimes you need to just make sure that it's it's all good I've always been a, a strong advocate for confirming a tune where possible on the road or the racetrack if that's where the car's going to be used. And, and the reality, as you kind of just mentioned there, is that you know even in a well-designed dyno cell, it can be difficult sometimes to replicate the airflow and temperatures that we're actually going to see under normal road driving conditions. We've already talked about the issues on certain dynos getting down to those light load areas. So for a stretch-driven car, you know, I, I would have traditionally with my old Dynapack got those dialed in out on the street. So I, I want to make sure that the drivability is perfect. It's not uncommon though to take a car off the dyno and find out that your perfect you know, 12.2 to 1 air-fuel ratio that you're seeing on the dyno all of a sudden is 12.5 to 1 or something. It's just moved a little bit. The other one I always quite, I, I quite often find is you could get boost control perfect on the dyno. Like literally you could run a ruler through the boost curve. It's just perfectly flat if that's what you're trying to achieve. And then you take it out on the street or the, or the racetrack and all of a sudden you've got overboosts on gear shifts and you know, particularly the test I always used to do is let's say you've got full boost by 4,000 RPM so I'd roll into the throttle, get well above that boost threshold, maybe five five and a half thousand 5,500 RPM, lift the throttle, completely close it and then smash it back to the floor and just see what that boost does. Does it come back up nicely to the target or quite often it'll overshoot? So quite often I found I had to fiddle around with my boost control setup on the road compared to what I had on the dyno. But I mean, it's on a case-by-case basis. Definitely can't say it's always always going to be problematic, but but sometimes it, it just is. One way I sort of combated that, that's you're 100% right. Like you get your boost control correct go out in the street and it's all over the place. And closed loop boosts, like no matter how quick they are, sometimes they just accelerate so fast, like it can't pull it back down and it'll just hit boost cut, like it's, it's just how it is. So one way I combated it, I just, I ramped them really fast and it seems to, if it's going to overboost, it'll overboost. Sure. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Yeah, um, we haven't talked about ramp rates and literally that is just the speed with which the dyno is going to allow the engine to accelerate. So, I mean, traditionally what I'll try and do is is match something pretty realistic for a higher gear, maybe how quickly the, the engine will accelerate in fourth or fifth gear if it was out on the open road, because obviously that's then realistic conditions. A good place to start, I mean, obviously it depends on the engine, the gearing and how much power you're making, but a good place to start I always found is around about 500 engine RPM per second. That was a pretty good place to start. And if we're sort of talking about a, a, a 2,000 to 7,000 RPM run, obviously that's a 10-second run then. It's enough to, to really put some load on the engine and it's realistic. But yeah, a faster or a slower ramp run can actually highlight some problems that, that aren't, um, aren't necessarily obvious straight away. Yeah, so I'll ramp them fast and slow just to see if it all if it's all good. So Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. ECU of choice, what are you guys supplying and installing? Uh, Is it anything and everything? Pretty much. So we are a a Haltech dealer, a Link dealer, an Mtron dealer. Like my GDR and my, both my GDRs have Motex in them. 
I do a lot of cars with Motex in them, the new stuff and the old stuff. You know, we get the still get the occasional Power FC and Microtech, but it, I guess it all comes down to the customer, like what the car is being used for, what functions they are going to implement, like what would what they're going to benefit from. Like if it's just a someone with a, just a daily driver that wants to come in and something simple, then I'll always send them, you know, the plug-in route, so Link or Haltech, Mtron, whatever. And then obviously budget. And you know, some ECUs can do certain things better than other ECUs. So it all it all sort of depends. So at the moment we're doing a lot of stuff, a lot of different stuff, Link, Caltech, and Mtron. A lot of Link stuff recently, just because they are a bit more cost effective. Yeah, they make a good product for the price point. And and they're very good. They're simple, they're fast. We get along really well with the people at Link Australia, so we can get stuff really quickly. Jade, I think, is their media manager or the something manager. Jade hooks us up really good at Link. Haltech also, like Mighty Mouse Haltech, my Supra Haltech, the Civic is Haltech. I mean, I don't think you. I don't think you could be uh, run a tuning workshop in Australia and not support Haltech. Obviously, it's uh, Australian made, and it's probably one of the more popular entry to sort of semi-professional level motorsport ECUs over there. Correct. They do have functions that do really appeal for drag racing use. Just all their time-based control things like that. Their nitrous control. Like they just have little things that do excel over the others, and it, it is simpler. That stuff is a lot better. And then, yeah, Mtron that can just pretty much do anything and everything. I mean, I, th- I think to sort of tie a nice, neat little bow around this, the takeaway is if you're running a performance workshop, you cannot realistically get away with only offering or supporting one single brand of ECU. It's just going to be too narrow because the ECUs that you've just mentioned span a pretty wide range of price points and feature set. So it really has to be selected to suit the customer, what they're trying to achieve, and ultimately what their budget is. There's no point specking a, a high-end Mtron or, or Motec for a very simple street car where the feature set isn't necessary. You'd just be you know, unnecessary expense, particularly if your customer's on a budget. And let's be honest, every customer is on some kind of a budget. Let, let's move on. I've got a bunch of project cars that I wanted to get a bit more detail on we'll try and keep this a a little bit quicker and see how much we can we can get through here let's start with the supra x275 drag car and as i mentioned that there is an interview on our youtube channel which we'll link to so if people want a little bit more detail than we get into here they can go find that out so drag racing you could have already said is is your your key passion here what is it about drag racing for you as a as a performance workshop owner that kind of ticks your boxes and and makes interesting i guess number one pushing the limit of like things that aren't supposed to do what they're what they're designed to do i guess and just that rush like i love going fast like so you know i i haven't really delved into circuit racing which i probably will soon in the in the near future but um i just love that rush you're going fast and you know your vision going blurry and you can't see like that's just I just like I don't know. I just love it, and just the sound, like the noise and the feel, like you're strapped in this car. It feels like you, you, you know, you're flying a plane, sort of thing. Um, and when you're going, you know, six seconds at and a quarter mile, you, it's just a, uh, 
an adrenaline rush like you know like no other and just you know pushing the boundaries of these little engines i guess yeah getting extracting all this power from these little engines does put heaps of, like a lot of strain on them and it's just interesting just doing different things and figuring out how far they can go and what's going to do what and you know how to do you know we've done something different and what's how how we're going to get it and how we're going to put the power down and how are we going to keep this engine in its power band? Like, you know, this small engine with this massive turbo, how are we going to, how's this going to work? Like, it's just, it's good. It's challenging. One thing that sucks about drag racing is your campaign can be over in a split second, you know, or if it rains, it's all, you know, you could put in months and months of work and you go to the event that you're racing for when it rains. You just sit there, you know. I I remember I took my car to Australia many years ago to compete at the Jamboree in uh, Queensland. We'd made some wholesale changes to the car prior to that event and uh, obviously I needed to shake the car down, which was fine because we had time and there were three events that we had scheduled in New Zealand before it had to go in a container and we literally towed that car the length of the country to three separate events and three separate events got rained out so I ended up oh, shipping a car God. to Australia completely yeah. untested yeah. and uh, it went about as well as you'd expect it completely bit us so that was really frustrating. For me I kind of I know there's a mentality of those who haven't been involved with drag racing well you accelerate in a straight line for 400 metres like how hard can that be? And I mean, admittedly, if you're running 13 or 14 second passes, well, yeah, there's there's probably not a, a massive te- technical challenge to it other than cutting a really good light. And, and that in and of itself is a, is a different skill. But you know, once you start running sort of, you know, sub 10 seconds, sub 9 seconds, 8 sevens and into the sixes, yeah, there's a bit of driver skill involved. I mean, it's not; it's a different set of skills to driving around a racetrack, but you know, there's definitely some driver skill involved. For me, I always sort of gravitated towards drag racing because, primarily as an engine builder and a tuner, I found there was no better place to prove the worth of your product than the drag strip. You know, everyone's probably seen. Uh, unrealistic cheated dyno sheets and you know those are pretty meaningless but it's pretty hard to cheat the ETN mile an hour and for those who know how to read a, a time slip that time slip will tell you just about everything you need to know about how much power that car's making. The only thing I did find is obviously when we were trying to break world records with a 1200 horsepower car that came out of the factory with 300 horsepower, drivetrain reliability was hugely problematic and you end up spending more and more money on the car in order to spend less and less time in the driver's seat, which at some point you sit back and go, well, shit, does this still make sense? Since moving to Queenstown, we've got no drag strip and I've sort of shifted to circuit racing, which I must admit I'm really enjoying, but it's a, it's a different set of challenges and a different level of enjoyment. Right, coming back to the Supra, can you give us a, a quick overview of this X275 radial class? What is it and why has that become really popular? Just uh, obviously just controlled tyre. It's a little little tyre. And the way you have to manage the power to actually make this tyre hook and go is, is, I think that's the challenging part. Once you have got that tyre to hook, you can just feed it in and let it eat pretty much. And I think as we touched on earlier, a lot of it is eighth mile racing, which is half track. I personally don't really do much eighth mile stuff. I just stick to the quarter mile events. But running the eighth mile is half the time. And like, you know, you often find that 
you know, a lot of catastrophic failures happen on the second half of the track. Yeah, that's where the engine's sort of really heavily loaded. So you kind of get away from that that side of things. Correct. Yeah. So it's a lot more affordable for people, and it's just not two seven five like the radial stuff. It's you know two three five three one five. And it, or three one fives are like the the pro classes, but yeah, the two seven five I think is really challenging because there's just all kinds of different cars that can run there. Like you know, we have we're running a two J Supra, but then there's big block V eights in it. There's the Barras, there's RBs, there's you know all kinds of cars. Yeah. So that two seven five tire becomes the leveler across the field. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And you can't just go and throw as much power at it as you can make because you're just going to blow the tyres off it. Yeah, but then, you know, a lot of people, there's the people are running live axle rear ends, they're running IRS rear ends, they're running um, rear clips, like so just the rear, you know, the chassis back, then they're doing big four links with big diffs. And so there's there's a lot of different cars, but as you said, the leveler is the tyre. And depending, you know, there's, you know, you got Outlaw 275, which is do whatever you want, as long as you got a 275 tyre. It's like OG 275. It depends which event you are running in. Like the Kenda rounds, they will have like Outlaw and then OG and then there's same tyre, but it just comes down to what you've actually done to your car. So, you know, you got full pro mods that are like a full pro mod chassis with a carbon body, blah, blah, blah. Put a 275 on it, it'll run in, you know, Outlaw 275. So, you know, you got cars that are, 500 kilos different in weight and just like how are you gonna compare there i'm just imagining a pro mod with a 275 on the back is going to look a little bit odd but that's probably beside the point they do look funny definitely give us some sense of the sort of etm mile an hour that the super is running on that 275 just so people can kind of get an idea of what what we're talking about 679 212 is my quickest so this isn't hanging around that's no joke so we are we are still one of the quickest we used to be the quickest in the country, but we are still up there. I think we're in the top five or something on the 275. We peaked very early with that car. It was quite a new car and we just kept going, kept going and we we got to there and then from then it was just gearbox dramas and, and then we fought gearbox dramas for two years and finally got a, a new gearbox, new converter sort of set up and now we've found limitations in other places. Um, now we've run out of turbocharger, we've run out of intercooler, but there are some cars that are going really quick. But we're we're still up there with them. But yeah, it's going over a full like giving it a bit of a birthday for next time when it comes out. Fair. Do you just mention the transmission and the torque converter? So obviously it's an auto and this must be a, a big consideration with that small tire and sort of managing the power delivery to the tire, not not sort of breaking it free so is the auto really the proven way to go as opposed to a clutchless box which we're also seeing drag racing the likes of a liberty or maybe a a g-force clutchless well from i might be wrong but from my experience the only clutchless radial car i have seen is titan motorsport with their supra that's a full chassis car but that's a quite an impressive car and and it's very fast. I think they've gone six, six forty or something. I will say, having seen that car run, and I think we watched that at TX2K back in, shit, it must have been twenty nineteen before COVID now. And I mean, they they got it down the track, and yes, it was very fast. But it took them 
I think three or four passes to get the the clutch dialed in to the point where it would actually leave cleanly and go down the track. So I, mean, so I think when you're traction limited, the flexibility that you get with a converter and an auto, it just it gives you more flexibility to get the car to go down the track, particularly if the track prep isn't like right on point. Is that is that fair? Yeah, yeah. Well, track prep for a radial car is very crucial. They put a lot of glue down for these tires to for these cars to hook up. But yeah, the converter does take a lot of that away. Um, you can like instead of stuffing around, you know, with clutches, as you know, you got your your base pressure, and then you got you know all this other stuff going on, and the clamping force, and you know centrifugal force, and weights, and there's a, there's a, a lot of science and a lot of art to setting up a, a slipper style clutch. Yeah, setting all that up is, is so hard with with the converter. You know, you have a certain you just you have converter slip. And obviously that changes. You change that pretty much with the amount of power you're putting in on the start line and that will determine how much that converter is actually locking up. Like are you getting it to its stall speed, like to the lockup, or are you not? Are you are you below it or it does really help and it, it takes a lot of strain off the drivetrain, that initial thud. That initial hit, yeah. Yeah. I'd say that the bigger thing as well, well maybe not the bigger thing, but another equally important element with the the auto is the way the shifts progress and it doesn't tend to unload the tyre on the shift. I'm not a 275 car, but I relate back to when I was involved with tuning the heat treatments racing R32 GTR. At the time, that was the fastest... I think it was the fastest four-wheel drive outright in the world. I think it ran seven forty-one. Obviously, times have moved on a mile from there. Is that Reece, that's Reese McGregor, isn't it? Reece, yeah, Reese McGregor. Yeah, correct. I loved that car. Yeah, I think we were we were sort of circa sixteen hundred wheel horsepower, which again these days doesn't really sound like much, but. The limiting thing for me is I could put more power into the car, but watching Reese drive that thing, standing behind it on the start line, and it was a handful. Like, shit, it had used... That was a Liberty, wasn't it? That was a Liberty. Yeah, air-shifted Liberty. But every shift, you just see the car move. And, you know, sometimes it's like on the centre line, almost rubbing up against the wall on the next shift. And, you know, it's like, God, this is, you know, respect to Reese for keeping the thing, you know, shiny side up. And that was sort of like basically that car stalled out around about that time that the was sort of hit this um, glass ceiling and couldn't go quicker. I mean, these days, particularly, you look at the, the likes of Matux and, and Croydon, they've all gravitated towards the auto. And that's just been one of the keys to, to really unlock the ET and mile an hour and, and that platform, I think, because it doesn't unload so much on the, the shifts. Interested to, to sort of talk about torque management strategies or most classes of drag racing traction control is is not legal but there's other ways of working around that with profiling drive shaft speed are you doing anything around that no so we log it all like obviously just input shaft speed tail shaft speed drive shaft speed but the way that so far we've been lucky enough to be able to do torque management just simply i have time based boost control there's two modes of boost control obviously the wastegate on the turbocharger and then we have a charge bleed on just before the throttle body if i need to bleed boost there i can and also then time-based ignition timing maps obviously i'm on a trans brake on the start line and i let go 
uh, not on the Supra itself, but like on that Celica, it has wheelie control. So we've got a laser pointing, like a, la- a laser mounted on the on the chassis, on the front, and we calibrate that. So you know, as it lifts up or as as the laser starts measuring, like you know, an increased distance, depending on the distance that we have a timing table, so it will start pulling out ignition timing to pull the car back down. You know, you can't do it too much because then, you know, the car will fall over and like sort of hit a hole and come back up. And obviously, you know, pulling too much ignition timing at big boost can be quite detrimental as well. So uh, That can cause its own set of issues. Yeah, yeah, correct. So you can't do too much. So, you know, it, there's a few things that we've implemented without going into too much detail. But yeah, then we also, with the Supra, we use transmission pressure control. So controlling the torque converter pressure and stuff like that. We can use valves to shift the power that like, you know, using the converter dump, internal and external dumps to do that sort of stuff for power management. And yeah, it's all pretty basic, really. Um, we're not using any any forms of sort of torque management, like traction control, or anything like that. It's just all raw. I'm literally just making the engine and the turbo make less or more. So basically, do a pass, look at the data logging, was it wheel spinning, in which case you need to pull a little bit of power out of it, was it hooked up the whole way down the strip, great, it's going to probably take more power for the next pass and then make iterative changes like that. I'm interested with the, with the drag cars, with your tuning philosophy, when you're on the dyno with, with these sorts of engines, are you tuning them to 100% of the power that you're going to use on the drag strip? Or are you sort of getting a, a baseline tune in them? You know, maybe you've got an engine that ultimately is capable of 2,000 horsepower. You're sort of doing some some runs up to maybe sort of 12 to 1,500 horsepower, then dialing in the rest at the track? Or you know, how, how do you approach that? The way I approach it personally, I try to give it everything on the dyno and not give it everything just so – and not not down to every last horsepower. Like we'll just – say this thing's good for 80 pounds of boost i'll try to run it i'll try to run 80 on the dyno just to make sure because at the track you're never going to go if you've never run 80 pounds you're never going to go and just put 80 pounds straight into it you you are going to creep up on it but then in saying that you can also there's so many cars like pretty much all of them we only we only do tune up to a certain point and go maybe we can push this further and we end up do pushing it further at the track but often after it leaves the dyno, if it's a pretty fresh build or if it's seen like a major change, we'll just get it out there and like, you know, do the launch, do a half pass, get off and let's have a look like where, and then look at the data, see where everything is heading. And then until, you know, and then we see that if, if that all looks good, then give it a full pass. And then if that all looks good, then we'll creep up on it. So we don't exactly tune, like go out with the power that we had just made. In the Supra, for instance, I've only run it at 75 pounds of boost. Oh, that's the max before the turbo ran out. I've only done that like four times or five times just because we, we always go back doing some big major changes and we go back and we're not, not knowing what we're going to see. And, yeah, just creeping up on it really. But, yeah, having a dyno there, like you may as well just turn it right up and see what it's going to do because you often find that when you do go on the track, it's all going to be a little bit different. Yeah, we, we try to get a proper baseline of everything so that all bases are covered but yeah often we do end up giving it a bit more so yeah half and half really sometimes we do give it everything because you know you do want to see what this thing's capable of on the dyno 
but a lot of the time we don't because especially when we have like big dollar engines aluminium rod things so we don't we don't want to be don't want to put undue wear and tear on these things i mean per- personally i i always found it it was terrifying running our drag engines that sort of you know we were only back then 50 55 pound of boost or thereabouts but it's not so much the boost but when you're revving these things out I mean my engine didn't make full boost until seven and a half thousand rpm and you're revving it to ten and a half and it's just like oh please let this run be over yeah yeah it's just a sensation that is so different to driving the car down the strip. You're just feeling all of the vibrations and everything. And I, I don't know, for, for me, I just, I didn't find it a a, a pleasant sensation. I kind of was more of like, let's just get a baseline in here. We'll, we'll run it to 45 pounds. Uh, I'll do a, a pull out to nine and a half thousand RPM. I've already, it's already mapped. I've, I've run this thing for the last two seasons. I just need to check it out, make sure that everything matches up and like, let's just, let's go to the strip and, and do it there. Coming back to the, to the Supra, You've just said it's sort of going through a bit of a birthday now. Obviously, we've already talked about the the 275 tyre, which kind of becomes a limiting factor. You said you're out of of turbocharger previously. So it sounds like in the deep end, at least, it's going to take more power. Is that the way to go faster? Bigger turbocharger, more airflow, and manage it for the short track so that you're not overpowering the tyre and then let it eat for the the deep end? Yeah. So we have run out of turbo. Right now it's a 90, uh, 98 mil GTX 55 Gen 2. So we're going to a 104 mil G57. And that's what we'll, that's what that'll go to. But then the other thing is we've had a few dramas with intercoolers with that much boost and, you know, them sort of shaking around. It ends up splitting, running the water to air. And we've had, um you know, intercooler splitting and boost going into the water system and spraying water all, all through the car and it's yeah, a little bit dangerous. Yeah, right now we just got this intercooler that we had just found. This American company makes them. Um, they're good, but they're big and they're heavy and it's not as effective as our old intercooler. So now we're, we've been making heaps of other water-to-air intercoolers just using the Garrett cores. Pretty much each core is rated to 1,000 horsepower. So you just end up stack, you just stack them up. And the more you stack them up, like, you know, 2,000, 3,000, whatever, that's how they work. And then, you know, going to obviously trying to design a billet tank, you know, to just for a bit of safety there, stuff like that. But I think just making them out of three mil and, and bracing them and stuff, that's what we're just going to do for now because I don't think I'm going to run the Supra for too much longer anyway. But, yeah, so turbocharger, intercooler, I did a bit of damage to the cylinder head, so it needs a cylinder head. That head's been on it forever. Like, you know, it's a pretty old car, so it's copped a bit of a beating. And Will at JHH, who does our cylinder head, said it's it's getting a bit on the soft side. So he said, "Next time something happens, we need a new one." It's uh, it's not something that most people would think of as a consumable, but at these sort of power levels, they unfortunately do tend to be relatively expensive consumables, as is most of the engine componentry. Looking into your crystal ball with all of these changes complete, what, what do you see you being able to get to in terms of ETM mile an hour? Well, as I said to you before, we peaked in that car really quickly, but. Since then, I've been able to mile an hour more in some parts and I've been able to 60 foot better. And the 330 is another thing I'm going to really concentrate on because I know that I can put the power in and bring it home. There's no dramas. But I've always tried to implement the charge valve on the intake, meaning that I keep the turbo speed up 
So when even though we're launching on, you know, 18, 19 pounds of boost, which is not a lot of boost, it is a small tire, so we can't give it too much. But then, you know, waiting for that turbo to accelerate, obviously the larger turbo you go, the slower it's going to accelerate. And then waiting for that turbo to accelerate, you know, we're losing power there. So you're you're purposely introducing an air leak pre-throttle body. So the turbo speed is more what you'd expect around 70 pound of boost or 75 PSI. But the engine's not seeing that because of this boost leak. But the benefit is then you close that valve. And rather than waiting for the turbo to spool up, which could take quite a, a long period of time with such a big turbo, you've almost instantly got that boost. Correct, yeah. And I think that's going to be our um, our key factor on getting the 330 down, the 330 foot, like the which is the first 330 feet of the track. And yeah, and obviously we have a new gearbox now, which has different gear ratio as well. It's got a, a tighter torque converter, which it needs more power now to get it going. Um and just relearning all that stuff. It is a new gearbox combo, a new converter combo. And yeah, the turbo is maxed out at 75 pounds of boost. We're seeing that like compared to the old intercooler, our air temps are, you know, a lot higher than what they used to be. So we're going to redesign our own new intercooler. Dan Fab Lab, our fabricator, he's been making some pretty good water-to-air intercoolers lately. We've been like, you know, just stuffing around with a few different designs and really getting them working very efficiently and seeing really good power gains from obviously cooler air and being able to build something lighter, yeah. We, we haven't specifically talked about it, but with 75 PSI, I'm safe in assuming that you're running on methanol fuel here. Yep, yeah. Okay, so with methanol, there's sort of two schools of thought. We see almost as many turbocharged cars running methanol with intercoolers as we see without. And I think it comes down to almost a from one tuner to another their preference. But you know, with the the cooling effect that the methanol fuel has on the charge temperature, basically it draws the heat out of the the combustion charge temperature as it goes through a phase change from liquid to vapor. So it has a, a massive cooling effect, also aided by the fact that we're using so much of the fuel compared to a gasoline based fuel. How much importance do you place on that air temperature out of the intercooler? Man, a lot. I'm a big believer in intercoolers and I'll give you a, like a perfect example. So there's this RX-8 that we do. It's a 13B methanol drag car. It's got a ProMod 88 precision turbo on it. We just saw at the end of the run, air temps was at like, air temps were at 150, 160 degrees Celsius. And we had upstream injectors in the pipe, heaps of auxiliary injectors putting the methanol to keep the engine alive. And it did it flawlessly, it did it for ages. So I just figured, you know, at the end of every meet, when we'd be turning the boost up and really getting on it, we'd pull the engine apart and the apex seals would be a little bit sort of furry, you know, that it'd be every time apex seal, apex seal, which is fine, you know. It's quite cheap for a rotary to do that, easy. But then I was like, man, look, let's just, I just want to try, put an intercooler on it. Like, I think we'll really gain some power with some consistency. And rotaries, you know, they're great engines, but they're a little bit fragile. They're not fragile. You just have to be very attentive, you know. Like if something is out of spec, like, you know, if we add a target, then it doesn't take long for them to – they're not as forgiving as a piston engine. So um, we wanted to keep it a bit more reliable. And so we built – so Dan built a water-to-air in a cooler. It was double-stacked, 1,000-horsepower cores, custom tanks, all that stuff. I tuned it on 40 pounds of boost. It came on boost 
probably a thousand RPM earlier, just because I think the pure air density and the like, you know, the amount of air that it was actually using now. I didn't need all those auxiliary fuel injectors anymore. I didn't need the upstream injectors and stuff anymore, which simplified that. And, you know, it did put a little bit of weight in the car, I think 40 kilos in total, a bit less, like when it was full of ice and water. And it made another 400 horsepower through the mid-range. Shit, that's no joke. And up top, it made another, it made another, on the same boost, it made another 150 horsepower up top. So all up, it made 1,200 horsepower. It used to make 1,050, made 1,200, nearly 1,200. And then it made 400 horsepower through the middle, just the amount of boost. And we took this car back to the track and it was like an animal, like first and second gear where it was kind of struggling to get going. It was now lifting the tires and he was, you know, like lifting the front wheels up off the ground. He was like fighting it and like it, it just became a completely different car. We ended up PBing. And now that car is the fastest 289 13B in Australia. Like, you know, people are like, you know, going, wow, what did you do? We put an intercooler on it. That's a very compelling case study for adding an intercooler to a methanol fuel drag engine. Yeah. And methanol, look, methanol with cool air can be a bit tricky. What we've seen, especially with nitrous, it can be a bit tricky. And like adding adding all that air and adding all that methanol, obviously, you know, methanol, the way it oxygenates and when it when it combusts, like, you know, it's it's pretty crazy. We had to we had to do things with the ignition system because all of a sudden it wasn't sparking it. So it was it was it was pretty hectic. Like that car's got a CDI, but you know, then we had to look into, you know, the CDI it came a bit it became a bit weak and it's pretty hard to light off the charge on methanol fuel, particularly at ex- exceptionally high boost levels. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm I'm still so that really like you know before that my Supra's water to air. So and everything we build is intercooled. Like you know, there is a thing you know it's lighter, less things to go wrong, blah blah blah. But it does make more power, and especially you know if you're trying to put weight in places this is another advantage like certain cars you need to add weight into certain places and with the water to air you can you can put the tank here or you know you can you know if all of a sudden you got an intercooler at the front it puts a bit of weight on the front like to keep the front down and yeah but more flexibility yeah yeah and I, i'm a big believer in it i think yeah i think it's it's a lot better i definitely spear everything in that direction I mean, when you've seen those results firsthand, yeah, it becomes a, a no-brainer. I mean, I, I went the the ice water to air intercooler on, on my Evo because I wanted the confidence of knowing that my air temperatures were going to be under some form of control. And, you know, that was probably one of my first experiences moving to methanol fuel as well. So I felt like I had enough of a learning curve ahead of me with just learning the properties of the methanol fuel, what it wanted in terms of timing and air fuel ratios, that if, if I could stick to you know, a more controlled intake air temperature, it just took one more variable out. Um, so I never actually back-to-backed it with and without the intercooler, which thinking back now, I'm not really too sure why we didn't. It wouldn't have been that difficult, but um, your, your example there is probably uh, enough evidence for me anyway. Look, Varun, we could talk for a lot longer and there's a bunch more of your projects that I would have liked to get into but we're uh, we're sort of getting on towards a couple of hours now on this and I do want to respect your time so I think we will move towards wrapping this up and maybe we'll get you back on in the future to talk about some of these other projects which uh, I am excited about and are really cool but 
Uh, we've got the same three questions we ask all of our guests here. The first of those is, what's next in the future for you and 101 Motorsports? We're pretty good. We're, I think I'm pretty proud of what we've achieved and we're pretty comfortable doing what we do now. Really, I've been sort of telling people that I, I want to sort of slow down a bit, really. Like less builds. Like right now, the shop is full. I think there's 20 something cars in there. And like every day, we've got to push them out and work, push them in. And we're lucky to have a lot of good customers. The customers that keep coming through the door are really good. And what we're working on, we're, we're comfortable working on those sort of things, doing a lot more R35 stuff. So trying to do a bit of, bit of newer stuff just to keep with the times because, you know, not everyone's going to do this stuff forever. So have to do like things a little bit different, but you know, work smarter, not harder. But as I said, I'm not a very good businessman. I just like battling along doing what I do. But um, It's more of, the, more of the same. Yeah. Actually, we are, I am expanding. But yeah, that's a story for another day, I guess. I think here's a, here's a guy that you actually know. You've been to Fiji to tune. Ah, yeah. So, Satan, a guy named Satan. Yeah, I'm actually taking a dino. To, oh, that's where I was born. Yes. Yeah. So I actually went and uh, I went on holiday with my family and I'm actually sending a dyno to Fiji and I'll be spending sort of next year half half just you know just chilling uh, you know I'm, I'm it's an interesting car culture in Fiji that was many many years ago I went over to Fiji and tuned I think it was three cars it was a it was an eye opener first of all because it was Suva, which is not the tourist side of of Fiji. That's kind of the the real aspect of Fiji. The, there was no dyno there, so I'm I'm road tuning these three cars. I think it was in was it two cars maybe it was an Evo and a Subaru anyway. And I distinctly remember that the roads in Fiji are not that great. <laughs> and no, uh, not. Yeah. Literally, this this GC8 Subaru STI that I tuned, and I think it was a, a basic engine with a, a turbo upgrade, uh, injectors, and a plug-and-play ECU. So it was, like, it was nothing crazy. It might have been, on a good day, might have been 300 kilowatts at the wheels, if that, probably not quite that. I, I'd pretty much finished up tuning it, and we're doing a, a an acceleration run just to sort of final check mixtures and everything. And the road was so rough, it literally lit up over a bump in second or third gear and when it landed obviously it gripped up and it smashed the transmission and I mean anyone who's dealt with the GC8 <laughs> knows those gearboxes are made of glass at the best of times so I'm like well oh, I am not Sorry, coming back laughing. here <laughs> yeah, I think my, my days of road tuning cars at that sort of power level yo, I think I'd had had enough of that no, he spoke very highly of you he was like oh, tell, tell Andre he knows me yeah yeah and I was like yeah yeah <laughs> No, I still look back fondly on that trip, even if it maybe wasn't entirely successful in terms of uh, gearbox life expectancy. All right, next question for you, Varun. Is there any advice you'd give to a younger version of yourself to help reach where you are today in your career faster? I mean, it, it kind of from the story you've given us, I think you've sort of ticked all the boxes along the way. But I think I got there pretty quick, but to follow my lead, really, you know, if anyone ever needs, you know, guidance or any kind of advice, I'm, I'm happy to give it to them. But I think in this industry, if you want to be good, then you have to really work towards being good. I guess what I mean is you just you just have to work towards what you want to do. Like you can't sort of slack off. You have to put in the hard yards. And the more you do, the better you're going to get. Like the, the biggest thing I can tell people is, you know, if they want to be a tuner, learn the mechanical side of things first, learn how everything works, 
get your hands dirty, do all that, and then, you know, do a HP Academy course and it, it will it will really put things in, into perspective and then add everything you know together and do it. Just jump in and do it because the more you do it, the more you'll understand, the more you'll get better, the more you can like carve your craft and do that. So there's a couple of things I'll add to that. And I think, again, from the story that you've told us of how you've sort of got to where you are, I think for me the key takeaways there is you obviously showed a work ethic and were committed. So I think that's really important. You've got to have passion for what you're doing. And again, as I mentioned earlier as well, being able to see the, the big picture, like thinking outside of, of the box, that, that's really important. You mentioned earlier as well common sense, and I, I didn't pick up on it at the time, but common sense is a term that's thrown around so often. But honestly, the longer I deal with people in the industry, I would say common sense is actually unfortunately not very common. So there's th- those, those sort of things to keep in mind. Speaking about being the best, and I think the tuning industry is an arrogant industry. And I think this kind of feeds into the secrecy that uh, a lot of tuners, you know, try and sort of make out that, you know, what they do is is some secret source. And the reality is I probably fell into that trap earlier in my career as well. You learn quickly, though, that that's not the case. There's no there's no secret source here. You, you take an engine to two competent tuners who understand the principles of tuning, and you're not going to get a situation where one can make 200 horsepower more than the other. That's just that's not possible. The, the engine ultimately is going to define how much power it can make, and our job is just to give it the correct amount of fuel and ignition timing. If we do our job properly, the engine will make what it's designed to. The, yeah, we are not magicians here, and that's always been HPA's logo. Tuning is not magic. It is a science. I don't personally buy in these days to the, this person is the best tuner. You know, what does that even mean? Best at what? Because if we're into drag racing, or oh, okay, fine, we're defining best by ET and mile an hour, but there's subtleties in that as well. You know, if you've got a, a, a 275 car that's traction limited, you're walking an absolute razor's edge in terms of dialing in the power to the, to the track the whole way down, and that's changing as the track evolves day to day, track to track. You know, so that becomes power management as opposed to outright tuning. Yes, it's an element of tuning. For me, I actually believe that the hardest challenge with tuning is to replicate factory drivability on a modified car with an aftermarket ECU. Getting a car with a big set of cams to start at minus five degrees C on a winter's morning here when there's snow on the ground in Queenstown and idle at 1100 RPM perfectly and then drive just like a factory car yet still make, you know, what would it be, six, eight, twelve hundred horsepower, whatever that might be. That for me is a, that's a challenge. That is a real challenge. Probably more so than getting a 2000 horsepower car to go down the drag strip. So, but the reality is they are just different challenges. So, I don't think there's a best. I think there's always challenging yourself to be better than you were yesterday. I think that's that's my take on it. Yeah, you, you got that exactly right. Like I really pride myself on exactly what you just said. Like even our drag cars, I just like to lean in, bang, you start it and you walk off. Like, And that is the most challenging thing, just making the thing start, making it rev nicely, making it drive nicely. Agreed. All right, Varun, last question for today. If people want to follow you and see what you're up to, where are they best to do so? What are your what are your social media accounts? Social media, so Instagram, 
obviously is 101 motorsport 101 dot motorsport so just the numbers 101 and dot motorsport facebook same thing 101 motorsport we have a website www.101motorsport.com.au that's pretty outdated we barely go on that but um we're pretty active like you know if anyone's ever got any questions you know just hit us up on instagram facebook you can call our office whatever you know i have my personal motor my personal page mr 101 motorsport I'm always stuffing around, posting funny stuff on there. It's kind of annoying. Like, you know, if it's not on social media, it's like you haven't done it or people don't think you've done it. So just lately we're starting to be a bit more active on social media where before, you know, we do so much cool things and people don't know that we've done them. So, you know, I don't I don't need more work, but it's just to show that, you know, you know we, we've done this, we've done that, you know. If anyone's building the same overseas or wherever you are, and you you want to know something, I mean, I'm I'm not a, a secret keeper. I don't, I don't care. You know, if you want to know something, I'll tell you. It's it's like that. All right. Well, as usual, we'll put links to those in the show notes, so it's uh, easy for people to find. Look, Varun, uh, really great to chat. Uh, always a pleasure to chat to you, and uh, really interesting to learn a little bit more about your backstory and the history of 101 Motorsport. Like I say, a bit of a shame we couldn't get into some of the other cool projects that you've got going on, but uh, I know there'll be another time. So wish you all the best for the future, and particularly look forward to seeing uh, your new projects come out and uh, maybe the, the ET and Mile an Hour improve on your Supra. Yeah, thank you, Andre. Always a pleasure. Really good talking to you. And yeah, I love seeing what you're doing for the industry. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Sweet. Thanks, mate. If you enjoyed this episode of Tune In with Varun, we'd love it if you could drop a review on your chosen podcasting platform. These reviews really help us to grow our audience and that in turn helps us to continue to get more high quality guests. To say thanks, each week we'll be picking a random reviewer and sending them out an HPA t-shirt free of charge anywhere in the world. This is also a great place to ask any questions you might have and I'll do my best to answer them if your review gets picked. So this week a big shout out to Help It's Zombies from Australia great username by the way, who has said such a great podcast with lots of replayability, started listening to this podcast a few years ago when I got interested in working on cars, the in-depth discussions with industry experts are always insightful, not just on a technical level but also a career level. Coming back to my favourite episodes, having acquired more knowledge is the best part for me as I can understand what I didn't on the first listen. Oh thanks for your kind words there, great to hear that you're enjoying the podcast and if you get in touch with your t-shirt size and Shipping details, we'll get a fresh tea shipped straight out to you. All right, that concludes our interview. And before we sign off, I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember, you've got that coupon code. You can use podcast75 at the checkout to get 75 dollars off the purchase of your first course you'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses important to mention that when you purchase a course from us that course is yours for life as well it never expires you can rewatch the course as many times as you like whenever you like the purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership that gives you access to our private members only forum 
which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute gold mine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.